Well, I think last week I said it was the last lesson. This week, I think for sure, unless something really interesting happens. So we've been talking about translating the Bible into English and some of the the ways that it gets done and why we need it. Last week we talked a bit about why we need new translations. One is better understanding of the source language. We understand Hebrew and Greek better than they did, say, a few hundred years ago when the King James was written. We also have more and better manuscripts. So as we get more manuscript evidence, manuscripts in our uh, museums and our archaeologists find all sorts of ways of uh, getting new biblical texts, we can incorporate those into our base of understanding. We also talked a bit, most of our time last week, in fact, was talking about target language changes. That is, English has changed uh, over many years. We talked about dead or archaic words um, or archaic usages of words. Uh, for example, Mark ten fourteen, when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer, that means allow, the little children to come to me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So we don't use the word suffer in this this way anymore. And it sounds like he's trying to make children suffer, but we don't want children to suffer. Obviously, obviously do we? Here's a new one. The word meet. Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. You see the word an, by the way, in front of the H. We don't do that anymore if you, have, if you pronounce the H. And help meet for him. This word meet means a suitable, fitting for him. In fact, this term, help meet, from the King James, was turned into one word. The word help meet. You've heard the term help meet, probably. Maybe you didn't know what that referred to. It's interesting, as this word meet, in the sense suitable, fell out of uh, English, even in the 1700s, it was starting to fall out of use. And so we had this term help mate. You might have heard the word help mate. Well, helpmate isn't really correct in the sense. It was just an adjustment. The word meet and mate, while they sound different, are not related. Um, interesting story. I was uh, back 20 more years ago. I worked at Grace to You, and John MacArthur was in the studio recording some uh, personal messages. He do that sometimes. People maybe at a radio station that he knew, and he was talking about a man and his wife, who was a wonderful helpmeet to him, using this old term, helpmeet. And one of the guys who was listening to the recording, uh, he said, no, that's not right, it's helpmate. And so he didn't under, he didn't know this archaic usage of helpmeet. He knew helpmate. But this word helpmeet has sort of made its way into our language, probably lasted longer than the word meet in this sense of is fitting. We also talked some about a term called false friends, False friends are words that you think you don't know in your language, but they actually have changed meanings over the years. For example, this one we talked about last time, First um, Peter one fifteen. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Now you see this verse in King James, you think it's talking about speaking uh, in a holy fashion. But conversation in King James time could mean your whole manner of behavior. So that's what this verse is talking about. In all the ways that you live, not just how you speak, but how you act, you need to be holy in your behavior. Another one, another false friend we didn't talk about last time, but another word, meet, M-E-A-T. So not M-E-E-T, but M-E-A-T. Second Samuel 3.35, when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, 
David swear, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, until the sun be down. Now this word meat, you might think, uh, David, not a vegetarian, if you wanted to have verses against vegetarianism, you might you grab your King James to a search for meat. But this word meat is a word in King James time, not just for flesh, a chicken, beef, that sort of thing, but used for food in general. In fact, the word translated, uh, meat, is the same word as bread later. It's a Hebrew word, lechem, which you might know, famous biblical town is Beth- Bethlehem. Right? Bethlehem means house or place of bread. It's not the house or place of meat, although that would be a good name for a barbecue joint, wouldn't it? So, when you see the word meat, sometimes it means flesh, but sometimes it means uh, more broadly food. Uh, we also talked a bit, we won't go into detail, about um, obscure or technical words like loving-kindness. We don't use the word loving-kindness, really, uh, so it's been translated out or removed from the most recent New American Standard Version. We have some figures of speech that might be confusing, like having bowels of compassion uh, is, is a difficult one to understand of what does bowels have to do with it. It's kind of a, a gross thing to talk about. So we translate it as um, compassion, for example. We also have changes in sensibilities and preferences. Again, this is review from last time. So things like whether we capitalize the use of pronouns waiting to God, capital him, lowercase him, um, use of God's name, that is, do we uh, take the name Yahweh in the Hebrew Old Testament and write it as Yahweh in English, or do we write it as, say, the Lord? Um, do we use maybe inclusive language instead of saying, um, say, Psalm 1, um, how blessed is the man who, it would say, uh, blessed is the person who, or blessed is the one who. So it's less male-focused in some cases, in, in areas where you're not speaking of particular men, but of people more broadly. We'll see some of that a little bit later. Another reason we might need a new translation is we have different audiences. So we have a various dialects of English, maybe American. Um, there was an Ebonics one came out, I'm not saying Ebonics is a good translation, but there was an Ebonics Bible that came out some years ago. Um, you have a special translation for, for children or for people who don't have English as a first language. Uh, the ultimate reason, though, for having a new translation is so that people can have God's word in their own language. We want people to be able to pick up the Bible, if they can read it all, or hear English, if they have any facility with English at all, to make it available to them so they can understand it without undue burdens in their way based on the translation that we have, uh, especially things like words that we don't use anymore or going to give them misleading ideas of what the Bible's saying. Let me read to you part of the King James uh, preface. It says, But we desire that the Scripture may speak like itself as in the language of Canaan, that it may be understood even of the very vulgar. So people, even the most common people, can still understand God's word. And I I quoted also William Tyndale last time. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. So a a boy who has, uh, in times past, had no education, you could teach God's word, and he could understand God's word and know it well. Now, before we 
continue with the lesson from last time. We're going to be talking about some parallel translations, lots of different English translations in particular. I wanted to rejoice a bit in the wonderful ability we have now to compare them so easily. So I brought here a stack of books, and it's not that many. I probably have some others I couldn't find. This is Bibles of different kinds. So if I wanted, if I was studying, say, the Gospels, wanted to know what different translations say, I could pick up, here I have my, well, I have New American Standard, the one I usually use. And then I have here, this is the New International Version, NIV. I have this New G of Study Bible is New King James. This one here, Thompson Chain Reference, is the King James. I have here New Testament, Revised Standard Version. I have Greek New Testament. I have Die Bibel. This is Luther's translation. Not that my German's all that good, but if I was curious, I could pull it out. If I was doing Old Testament stuff, this is the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. And I don't know any Hebrew. I took one Hebrew class, and I forgot almost all of it. So this is pretty much useless to me, but it is kind of cool to, to thumb through. This is, this is something that my dad gave to me uh, that he had in his library for many years. And it goes, where's Genesis here? In the back, yeah. Genesis, two. And they, they have it in the order of the, the, uh, the scriptures. Second Chronicles is at the end here. So it's a little different from our ordering. But anyway, so if I knew Hebrew, I could pull this out and find my way through the Hebrew text. So that's just a handful of things. I don't happen to have an ESE with me. Lots of other translations. Living Bible, many, many others. It could take hours if I was going to compare things side by side, pulling them out, opening it up, flipping around. Nowadays, um, now, you don't have to read this, but you can see, see all those lines on there? Each one of those, I, I go to my my application, my Logos application, go to the verse I want, right-click, do parallel translations, and boom, I've got, in this case, there are 31 English translations and paraphrases. I've got 16 Greek, 3 Latin, 1 Spanish. I don't know any Spanish um, or Latin. Not much Greek, for that matter. My English is a little spotty at times, too. But so th- this is I can see these side-by-side really easily, and, it's, and I could buy more Bibles if I wanted to. If I was trying to learn... Russian. I could buy a Russian translation and throw it up here, too. Um, This will be a little more legible, I think. Another interesting, fun tool. I can choose just a few translations if I want and show them side by side, and I can turn on uh, a feature. Oh, I'm going to turn off this light, by the way. See better, maybe. This feature where it will not only show that this is NASB, New American Standard, English Standard Version, ESV, NIV, and the Good News Bible is a uh, a looser translation, for example, but the it shows the differences. It has these little circles, maybe the red circles, you can't see them very well, and then the blue shows the differences. So I can easily, side by side, without much effort, even shows at the bottom percent difference from each other. So the ESV, in terms of words, is 20% different than the New American Standard, 43%, and 70% here in the Good News Bible. So it's just amazing how easily I can just do this side-by-side side with almost no effort. Now, maybe that's not good for my brain to, to have no effort, but that's just the way things are today. Now, if you don't happen to have Logos, um, this is something from Bible Hub. Again, you can't read this, I'm sure, but this if you go to biblehub.com slash parallel, it will pull up all these different things for you. There's modern translations, um, so New International and so forth. has what they call classic translation, King James. It has the early modern. Remember the Geneva Bible? 
and the Bishop's Bible, Coverdale Bible, the Tyndale Bible. We talked about some of these in the past from the 1500s. You can just see what they say here. This is Genesis 1-1. Some literal translations, Catholic translations, if you're interested in that. Translations from Aramaic. I don't know why, but you could do that. And then there's some uh, other items as well. So, again, God's really blessed us with lots of abilities um, online, even in the past 5, 10, 20 years, 30 years, of comparing Scripture translations with other translations to see what they might tell us how that might help us understand God's Word better. Well, let's move on to what are the ways we might make a new translation? What are the methodologies of translation? What are the philosophies? And by the way, this will be very high level. Uh, There are many articles and books written on subjects, which is the best philosophy. Even Bible translations have been written to espouse one view or another. The ESV I mentioned, I think, last time, English Standard Version, a lot of you may use that, and been very popular in reform circles. That was a reaction to some of the directions, say, the NIV or the the New Revised Standard Version were taking, so they wanted to find something that was a little um, less inclusive. And we could talk about this whole subject for many weeks, and but we don't need to, and I'm not really well-equipped to mediate any quarrels between Hebrew and Greek scholars and translators. So I'm just going to present some of the, the issues involved, Again, high level. I, I won't hit everything. If you have a favorite issue, you can maybe talk to me later about it. But let's just talk in broad terms. There are two main methodologies of Bible translation. And this would be true of other translations as well, but we're talking about the Bible right now. First of all, we have formal equivalence. Formal equivalence. It tries to match the form of the original. That's where we get formal from. The form of the original, basically word for word. Sometimes called a more literal translation. There's also one called functional or dynamic equivalence. And that tries to match the meaning and the style of the original. You might call it thought for thought. And it can help with the meaning, but it may take interpretations uh, as as you work through the translation. It may be more interpretive in a particular direction and maybe more than it's warranted in some cases. I'll say this. Every translation is an act of interpretation. Because you have to say, what does this word mean? But some take it perhaps a little further than it ought to, and we'll look at that some later. And there are other translations that are more in between. Hopefully you can see this all right. Here, here's a these arrows. This goes to more formally equivalent, more literal on the left side, more dynamic or functionally equivalent on the right-hand side. So we have the New American Standard here, King James. This is the Lexham English Bible, New King James, ESV. It's kind of trending more this way, but it's still more on the form-based side. The Christian Standard Bible, NIV. And then on this side, you have things like New Living Translation. This is the New International Reader's Version. And this NIRV here is more for people who are not English as first language folks, people who are learning English in other countries. So as you go to the right, they're more meaning-based, and so they'll be less literal. I'm going to quote Philip Comfort, who wrote a book. Other, in fact, several books on translations. He says this, a good translation must be reliable and readable. Makes sense, right? Reliable and readable. We don't want it to say things that, that the original doesn't say, but we also don't want to have it so difficult that we can't read it. That would be a problem, too. You, you could have a an accurate translation that was unreadable. Let's say if we were going to translate the Hebrew or the Greek literally word for word in the same word order that wouldn't always... A scan properly in English. 
And so we, we need to make some adjustments so that it can make sense to those who are reading it in, in English or the target language. There's also, as we think about the translation philosophy and how we do it, there are matters of style in the source. For example, the New Testament was not written in classical Greek, but in the common Greek. And there were some higher uh, structures in Greek and some lower, like like Hebrews and, and Luke Acts are are the more refined common Greek, and others like John are simpler Greek. And so it may be better to translate John in a simpler way than Luke. And just like the English you might hear on the nightly news is different from the English you might hear at the mall or someplace else in a more casual setting. So if you were to, say, translate in a Luke or Hebrews in a more colloquial English, it might sound funny. But if we take John and make it too elevated, it doesn't really fit the way John originally wrote things either. Now, everybody has their own preferences. You can tell by the fact that I use the New American Standard. I teach it. Uh, you know what my preference is. But... I'll admit that dynamic equivalents can have their advantages sometimes. And there's there's lots of articles, things on the Internet you can find about how the New American Standard or even, let's say, the, the, the Legacy Standard Bible is the best translation, and NIV is, is horrific, and we want to stay away from that kind of thing. But sometimes these more dynamic ones are, are even better in certain certain cases. So, for example... We look at this verse, Psalm 16, 6. This is a more formal translation. King James says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. NASB says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Now, you know what the word lines means in this case? The lines have fallen. What does it mean to have lines fallen to you? Brett probably knows he's, he's taught he's taught this before. Anybody who has not taught this this psalm, in, or preach this psalm, you tell me what it means to say your lines are following me, what lines is it talking about? Exactly. <laughs> so you, you read this, even New American Standard, what do the lines mean? What does heritage mean? We think of your heritage, what do you think of? You think of your, your ancestors, your, your family, um, Christian heritage. You think of the, the background you have in your culture or in your family. But that's not what this actually means. This heritage doesn't mean. So we get to the ESV, and we have something a little closer. It says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So that word inheritance, it's related to the word heritage, isn't it? But it's focusing more on the, the things that you received from the past. So not heritage so much, we might think of it today, but inheritance. In fact, the NIV has the clearest even though it's more functional, it says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So now we know the lines are talking about boundary lines. So you, you have in your house, you know where your lines are, where your boundaries are. So in the Old Testament, remember they allotted the, the, the places in the promised land. They would cast lots and different tribes got these different allotments. And then the people uh, who lived in those places would get their own Land and the land would be marked by lines or by boundary markers. And so, what this is saying here is, I have been given a good land. The, the the my plot here was given to me by God. This my boundary lines mark out what belongs to me, and this is my inheritance. If a father died, he'd give this to his his children. And so, that this verse is talking about the 
the things that, that were given by God, the, the good things we get from God, this inheritance. And the, the ES, or the, the NIV rather, when you read this, this gives you a clearer ID, idea of what this, this verse is telling you than the more literal translations. It's, it's clearer. Um, Psalm 23. We talked about this some last time. You could probably do it with your eyes closed. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And last time we talked about the fact that when you say you don't want something, it means you don't like it. Keep it from me. So it's confusing to see this. Well, we look at New American Standard, and what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. ESV, are they going to change anything? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, basically the same. One has a semicolon, couple has semicolons, one has a comma, but same thing. Now, what about the NIV? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Which is clearer, NIV or the more formal ones? NIV, NIV is more, more clear. I, I, I lack nothing. That, that's what I shall not want means. Now, there's a Christian standard Bible. It's interesting to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need, which means the same thing, but this more functional translation takes out the negation. You're saying, I have what I need, but this says, I lack nothing. This is a more, this is closer to the, the Hebrew saying things in a negative sense. Because there are, no, there's nothing I lack. CSB says, I have what I need. It means the same thing, but the NIV carries the spirit of it a little better than the, the CSB does. Uh, some issues in translation come down to, yeah, sure. Yeah, they changed it. They, they removed Holman from the, the title, and it, it's some of the wording is different too, but it's the same heritage. Yeah. Some issues come down to word choices, and you have to choose what you think is the best English term. But there's not always a best English term because we don't always know exactly what the context is or what it, what it means. So Luke two seven, for example, um, translators have to make this choice, and it's not always an issue of word for word or thought for thought. New American Standard says there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, ESV says there was no place for them in the inn. NIV says there was no guest room available for them. Now, which one's right? Is there an inn? Is this like a Holiday Inn, a Motel Six in in Bethlehem, or is this a guest room? Now, the same Greek word in this verse, Luke 2.7, is, is used in Luke 22.11. And Jesus is telling his disciples to prepare for the Passover. You shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So the, were the disciples supposed to go to the Holiday Inn and find a conference room? No, they would try. They would find somebody who was probably fairly wealthy. You have a, a large upstairs a guest room where they could meet with having thirteen people at least at this last supper. And so, depending on the context, and I read a number of commentaries. Some say this, this really is more of a, a place where you have a caravan and you could put up tents and you could have a lot of people. So it's not an inn necessarily. Some say it is an inn. Some say it's actually a private home with a guest room. And so that when Joseph and Mary uh, came to Bethlehem, and because people were streaming from all over to go to their place for the census, it was the house was full. 
And so they didn't have room in the, the guest room was already occupied, and so they had to stay downstairs where the animals would live. And, and so you think of the way things were housed back then, you might bring in your animals for the night, and so there could be even a, a feeding trough, a manger, in your, in your home that the, the animals could, could, so you bed them down for the night inside your home. And so that's where they had to stay, downstairs. In any case, who's right? New American Standard, ESV, or NIV? Don't know. That's where you get the commentaries to say it could be one or the other. It could be something different. Another consideration as you're translating is how do you handle transliteration? Transliteration. Translation means you take the, the meaning of something in one language and bring it into the other using the, the target language's words. Transliteration is where you take a word in one language and you you sort of configure it in the language, the target language. That is, you, you take the, this word and, and you use the same sounds in the target language, but it, not necessarily the meaning. Just as an example, to, to make it clear, uh, James five four in the King James NASB speaks of the Lord of Sabaoth. You remember in a mighty fortress, Lord Sabaoth, his name, Sabaoth. And in the New American Standard, it has a footnote saying Lord of Hosts. Sabaoth is not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word. And so when James was talking about the Lord of Sabaoth, he used the word kurios, the Greek word for Lord, but he used the Hebrew word for hosts. So he takes this Hebrew word. They have a word for hosts in Greek or armies. But they take the Hebrew word Sabaoth, and they write it in Greek letters, Sabaoth. And so you have this Hebrew word brought into Greek. Now what happens when you take that Hebrew word through Greek into English? Do you transliterate it like James did? And so say, like King James NASB, the Lord of Sabaoth? Or do you use, uh, do, you, do you translate that word from Hebrew through Greek into English? So the ESV says, uh, the Lord of hosts. Others say Lord of hosts. But when you think of hosts, what do you think of? Like you're hosting a, a barbecue, you're hosting a, a game show. So you have Lord of hosts. What, what, what is God hosting? Is he hosting a big party in heaven? Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's also not very clear, is it? It's clear if you lived in King James times, uh, because they would understand this term a little better. Now, the NIV takes a different approach, and it refers to this Lord of Hosts term as the Lord Almighty. Now, the word Sabaoth does not mean Almighty in itself, but it is consistent because when you go back to the Old Testament and it uses this term uh, Lord God, or sorry, Lord Almighty, or or Lord of Hosts rather, when it uses the term Sabaoth, Yahweh and Sabaoth or something like that, NIV translates it Lord Almighty, so it's consistent. It translates Lord Almighty in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew. When it goes to the Greek, from the Hebrew, it also translates it as Lord Almighty. Now, the Christian Standard Bible here, I think, may be the best translation. It translates it as Lord of Armies, because you might speak of the heavenly host, a heavenly group, um, but this is actually a term of armies. So you have a picture of God is the God of the, these armies of, of angels, his chosen ones, his his um, created beings who can do God's will. So I think the Christian Standard Bible has a good balance of literal and contemporary. The Lord of hosts. It takes that Sabaoth, it translates it into 
armies, or which could also be translated as hosts. So in this case, I, I like the Christian Standard Bible. It's, it's clearest as to what James is getting at. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so you could say the yeah, armies of heaven would be a good translation, but the word heaven is not used in here. So people will say, "What Tom's adding to the Bible? You know, throw it away." But that does get us across the sense for sure. Now, how do we handle figures of speech? Uh, this is a difficult one. I, I remember. In, I was, I studied some German in high school and college, and there's a kind of a funny figure of speech. Hast du einen Vogel? Hast du einen Vogel? Literally means, do you have a bird? Now, if you didn't know what this figure of speech meant, and some, and you knew a little German, and somebody walks up and says, Hast du einen Vogel? And he would say, No, I don't have a bird, but thank you for asking. But what it means is, are you crazy? Are you nuts? That's that's what the, the figure of speech means. Now, if I was going to translate, if I had a a, a book that used this term Haswan and Fogel, if I was going to translate it into English, would I translate it in English, do you have a bird? No, you wouldn't do that. Would you translate it as, uh, do you have a psychological problem? Do you have mental illness? Would that be a good translation? No, it kind of has the same idea of being crazy, but it's not as colloquial as, are you crazy? So, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Uh, would be a, a different, a, a good way of maybe translating it into our own vernacular. And then you might have a footnote that says, literally, do you have a bird? So people kind of know that it didn't actually say, use those precise words, are you crazy, in the original language. So we want to get the spirit of the figure of speech and not just the literal one. Or you might say, in English, I'm feeling a little blue today. If somebody didn't know English very well, they knew that they, they'd say, I'm feeling a little blue today. They might know all the words, but not knowing exactly what that all meant. You have to explain blue means, you know, I'm feeling a little down, I'm feeling a little unhappy today. So, uh, being less literal in some cases can be more helpful. If you're too literal, then people don't understand what you're talking about when you, as you go to different languages, or even from older English to newer English. Here's an example in 1 Peter 1.13. King James Version says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does this mean? Now, if you've been in the church a long time, you probably know this, but if you're a, a brand new Christian, never read the Bible before, and you get to 1 Peter 1.13, and gird up the loins of your mind, that, that sounds weird. It sounds inappropriate, doesn't it? What, what does this mean? Um, so New King James also says something like this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The original New American Standard, this is from 1977, says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Well, that's maybe a little easier to understand, but what does girding mean? Uh, We don't use that word very much. Uh, The 1995 update of New American Standard says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, this means something. Prepare your minds for action. I can understand that as a modern English reader, but there's a note that says, gird the loins of your mind. So it still has the, the literal translation or... In the 
in a footnote, but not actually in the text. Now, when they updated this a couple years ago, they say, therefore, prepare your minds for action. So it's the same translation as the one from 25 years previously, but they modernized the note. So instead of the note saying, gird the loins of your mind, they say, it reads, belt up the waist of your mind. And so that's, so they modernized the note, but not the actual translation. Uh, that's kind of funny. Now, NIV says this in the 84 edition, the original one, says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. But then in their update from about 10 or so years ago, it says, uh, therefore, with minds that are alert, and so forth. So all of these get at what Peter is saying, but some of them are clearer to more modern readers. So um, the, prepare your mind for action, with minds that are alert, those are all fairly good translations. And, and more clear than gird up the loins of your mind. The idea is, of course, that you have, in those olden days, when men wore things that were more like dresses, and you're trying to, to work or to run, to, to fight in some cases, um, so you don't trip over your skirts, you take them and you can tuck them in your belt, so you're ready ready to, to run, ready to fight. And so that's what this idea is, you're, you're ready to go. Um, so that, so translating the figure of speech really helps in this case. Um, Another thing we can talk about is euphemisms. Euphemisms, the kind of figure of speech. And this is referring indirectly to something that's offensive or painful or indelicate or inappropriate. Uh, we lots of times will see this used in, in our own language related to sinful behavior or bodily parts, bodily functions, the death, or even to refer to God. So in English, we use terms like pass away instead of die. Or we say somebody has an affair instead of saying they committed adultery, or saying a woman is expecting, or even older than that, they'd say a woman's in a family way, instead of saying bluntly that she's pregnant, or go to the bathroom, or things like, for goodness sake, instead of saying for God's sake, we say for goodness sake, or for heaven's sake. That's a euphemism, to not use God's name too casually. Sometimes these euphemisms are kind of funny, like somebody kicked the bucket. Again, if you had somebody who, who didn't know this term, to kick the bucket, but they knew the words kick and bucket, you might say, somebody kicked the bucket. And they'll, they'll kind of wonder, what does it mean to kick the bucket? Why are they kicking a bucket? But you know that if you know what the phrase means, it, it makes sense, even though it's a little silly. Um, Hebrew and Greek have euphemisms too, of course. Uh, in Hebrew, there's a term covering one's feet. It's a euphemism for going to the bathroom. And it's translated sometimes relieving himself or attending to his needs. We also, those are euphemisms too, right? Relieving yourself or attending to your needs are euphemisms for going to the bathroom, which is also a euphemism. And one translation actually uses the term using the toilet. Now this is a, a translation of a, something that happened back in the book of Judges. And they didn't have toilets like we have toilets today, but it helps understand, help you understand what it means, even though it's not, it's an anachronism to use that term. Uh, another uh, euphemism we see in Mark 15:37, and this is kind of a well-known one. Uh, people don't always know what it means, but people use the phrase today. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. We'll use that term. My car gave up the ghost the other day, and people will use that term, even though they might not know where it comes from. But it comes from the Old Testament, or the the, the, the King James of the New Testament. In, in this case, he gave up the ghost. Now, the King James. Translators use the term ghost for spirit. We use the term ghost for who kind of a, a spirits who haunt people, but that's not what it means in, in this case. It's just a general term for spirit. 
The New American Standard, though, says this, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Breathed his last. So this uses the term breathe instead of spirit. Now you know that the words, concepts in, in Hebrew and in Greek of spirit and breath are related, right? So the question is sometimes, is it better to use the term spirit or to use the term breath? In any case, we have the idea he breathed his last. When you breathe your last, you're dead. But it's a euphemism for dying. Now, the Good News Bible is very blunt. With a loud cry, Jesus died. And so we lose that, I think, a really picturesque idea of breathing your last, but it is clearer in this case. So what would you do if you translated it? You could uh, take your preference, depending maybe your, what your audience is. <clears throat> We're going to run out of time again. I'm having too much fun here. Sorry about that. Um, Uh, it's actually not, it's, it's a word related to pneuma. I, I can't remember exactly, but it's, it's as an ek prefix, so out. So, I'd have to look it up. I, I forgot what it was. But yeah, that is a, a, a challenge. I don't. I don't think so. Double check, but probably not. No. I can pull this up. It would take me too long to figure it out. I'm not that good at Greek to know what it says. We can look later. Yeah. In any case, other euphemisms for falling for falling asleep for death, right? Then that says that Stephen fell asleep, or there's even a misunderstanding with the euphemism in John 11, right? When Jesus says Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, well, if he's asleep, or if the girl's he'll, he'll, he'll wake up. Jesus says, no, he's actually died. But in that case, the euphemism has a special meaning because for Christians, death is not permanent. It, it's, it's a kind of sleep. You kind of look like you're sleeping when you're dead, but we'll be raised to new life. And that's an important thing in, um, in John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus, but also say 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so I think we will stop there again. Uh, and w- w- I want to talk more about a few things like interpretations happening sometimes in certain translations. You take a word or a phrase and you have to make a choice. What does this mean? And instead of adhering more closely to the literal sense of the Hebrew or the Greek, you, you interpret it along the way. And we'll, we'll look at a couple examples of that. And I want to say it's a difficult decision. If I were translating the Bible, first of all, I wouldn't buy that translation if I translated it because I don't know what I'm talking about in most cases. But you have to, every every word, every phrase, every verse, every chapter, every book, you have to go through meticulously and decide what's the best way to communicate what God's Word said as an expert in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. How do I present this to somebody in a way that will communicate the truth of God to this person?
And some people will go one direction, some will go another direction, some maybe go too far one direction. But for the most part, they're trying to accurately represent what God is saying. And I don't envy them that, that, that work. It's, it's difficult. And as we said with Jerome a couple weeks ago, everybody's going to complain. You're going to go too far, not far enough. You can't make anybody happy, so <laughs> you might wonder, why even bother? Well, any questions as we wrap up again and drag this another week? Yes? I find the pictures <laughs> which, um, may never be or God forbid. Yeah, that, that's a case where the King James translators weren't literal. Uh, there's a there's a term in Greek, you might see it a lot of times in Romans, for example, Paul will say, may it never be. That's a pretty literal translation of the the Greek term. But the King James translators translate that, I think, consistently as God forbid. But may it never happen is the idea. May it, when you say may it never be, God is sort of behind that phrase, but he's not explicitly in the phrase. So if you go to the, to the Greek and you say, God forbid, you're not going to see the word theos in there in Hebrew, or Greek rather, because it's it's not there. But it's an interpretation. God, We would say, God forbid, in or heaven forbid, if we're going to use euphemism, God forbid means may, may God prevent this from ever happening. And that's what Paul is saying without using the word God in there. So yeah, that's a figure of speech. Uh, could have some euphemism in it as well in our, our case, in our usages. But how would you translate it yourself? If you say it may it never be, that is kind of confusing, isn't it? Because we don't talk that way. God forbid makes more sense to us, but it's less literal. Yeah. Who wants to start a translation project with me? <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you see guest room, you think, wait, I, all this time I'm thinking about an inn. Uh, the, the, remember the cruel innkeeper who sees this beautiful young pregnant woman at the door with her, with her husband and and kicks him out, won't them inside. And that, you've heard stories like that, probably seen maybe a, a movie with a, a cruel innkeeper in there. It's not necessarily what it was. But you see the NIV, guest room, you, well, how is it a guest room if it's an inn? Yeah, so those can illuminate things that might, might lead to further research in that case. And that's why I had the thing up earlier where you can do it easily online if you want to. You just bring it up and show the parallel versions and compare them side by side and see what they teach you. In fact, in a lot of these websites, you click another link and it will take you to a list of 100 commentaries on that verse. And so that could also eat up an afternoon, but it's it's worth it. Yes?
Yeah, we want to be, sure, we want to be careful that, yeah, but translating it, it's, a, it's important to understand what you're writing about too, yeah. We don't, we want to avoid things like, well, everybody has their own interpretation, their own translation. I think it means this to me. This is not a good way to do Bible study, right? It does take careful study, careful thought, um, and doing things like comparing stuff side by side and maybe help you from going too far one direction. You can take a, a verse in one translation, and maybe it, they did an interpretation, and you say, well, this means this, and that, that's going to be my interpretation of it forever. But you see another translation that says, well, maybe this other translation is too narrow, or maybe it's even wrong. So looking at other translations can certainly help, or commentaries for that matter, to help you not get too narrow in some of your understandings of things without having a broader idea of what it really means or could mean. Yeah, there's a story. One of the books I read to prepare for this is a book written by a guy who, who he went to Bob Jones uh, and well-educated. He grew up with King James. He wrote a book about King James and the need for new translations. And he told a story. I wish I could remember the exact verse. It was something in Psalms. But they were he was at a, a Bible camp with a bunch of kids, and they had a list of verses to memorize. And so he'd memorize them. And there was one particular verse, and somebody asked, okay, what does this verse mean? And there were hundreds of kids had all memorized the verse, and nobody knew what it meant. Because the, the King James language was unclear to them. So for them, it's just memorizing words. So we want to make, we're memorizing the Bible, good thing to do, but make sure you understand what it's saying. Otherwise, you're just like a, a parrot that's just reading it. Or I can have a, uh, a computer voice read the Bible for me, but the, the computer doesn't understand what the Bible means. So careful with that, yeah. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you again for the many opportunities we have to know your word from many good books, many good translations, and many good online resources. And we have so many, we're so, so blessed with them, so many, we, we can't even read them all. 
And yet we thank you that you have made your word clear to us, that you've helped us to understand it, that you've given us the gospel that's so clear. May we hold on tight to those things that we know and study to show ourselves approved as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.